This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. One Orthodox patriarch is quoted about another Orthodox patriarch in the New York Times. Quote, he should not have identified so much with President Putin and even called Russia's war against Ukraine sacred. It is damaging to the prestige of the whole of orthodoxy because orthodoxy doesn't support war, violence, or terrorism. That is the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew talking about the patriarch Kirill in Russia. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate in the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So, Terry, (laughs) given that quote in the New York Times, has anything changed in the Orthodox world as Ukraine heads into its and all of Orthodoxy's Pascha and Easter? Let me reach here for a sports analogy about that quote. Would it surprise you that the Boston Red Sox don't get along well with the New York Yankees? <laughs> Not at all. Well, in this case, Russia and Constantinople slash Istanbul have been in a war of words and actions for, I don't know, a couple of centuries now, at which point it's it shouldn't be news to the New York Times that in the battle over orthodoxy in Ukraine, that there are tensions now with bullets and bombs and missiles flying when there were tensions before. Istanbul, Constantinople, the ecumenical patriarch, are closely aligned with the efforts of the United States and the European Union when it comes to opposing all things Slavic, for the most part, and that's been true for several decades now. That was true under the Obama administration. It was true under the Trump administration. I mean, so tell me something we don't already know, you know, in view of that story. It's infinitely more important what the patriarch of Antioch has to say about this situation and the tensions between these two churches. And it's infinitely more important what the metropolitans and bishops in places like Romania and Serbia, and the the very complex situation inside Greece, it's much more important to know what they think. But to me, one of the major criticisms I had of that New York Times article is that if, if I could name one person, now obviously the ecumenical patriarch and the patriarch of Moscow are important, they're gonna end up in the story. But if I could name one person in the entire Orthodox world who needed to be quoted in that story, it would be Metropolitan Anufri, who is the primate of the oldest Orthodox body in Ukraine, and that's the body that is directly connected by centuries of history with Moscow and with the Moscow Patriarchate. It's a totally valid story that there are churches, 
parishes aligned with that church, a church that is ecclesiastically under the Church of Moscow, the Patriarchate of Moscow. It is totally newsworthy that there are priests and parishes who have rejected Patriarch Kirill's statements backing the invasion of Ukraine. That's totally newsworthy. But it is way more important to focus on the fact that their metropolitan, the primate of Kiev and Ukraine, in the oldest of the Orthodox churches, and the ones that's still recognized by many Orthodox bodies around the world, it's important to note that he has been completely outspoken against the invasion and that he has done a lot to support efforts to pour relief efforts and money and help and food and aid into Ukraine. And his relief efforts have involved all kinds of people across the Orthodox spectrum. His name literally isn't in this New York Times report, which is a huge gap. I mean, once again, it's not surprising that the anti-Moscow elements of orthodoxy in Ukraine are anti-Moscow. Was that a consistent statement? I mean, nothing's changed there. If It may have gotten worse. In fact, it has gotten worse. But it is news when the person who is under the direct ecclesiastical authority of Moscow is opposing the Soviet invasion, opposing what Russian troops are doing, obviously, and backing relief efforts and other efforts to support, as he put it, the sovereignty and integrity of Ukraine. In fact, he put out a statement directly to the president of Russia. And there, here's that quote again. I ran this weeks ago in a column. Defending the sovereignty, that's a big word, defending the sovereignty and integrity of Ukraine, we appeal to the president of Russia and ask him immediately to stop this fratricidal war. He compares it to the sin of Cain, who killed his own brother out of envy, which is a striking biblical image. So that's one hole in this time story. The, the time story is about tensions going into Pascha. We're finishing Holy Week in Orthodoxy right now, and Pascha is this Sunday, the single biggest day on the Christian calendar. And as the late Billy Graham once told me, he's not aware of any religious tradition that celebrates Easter slash Pascha is the more ancient term with the fervor and the importance devoted to its theology that the Orthodox do. So the fact that we have a war between two Orthodox cultures and they're heading into Pascha Quite frankly, I would have liked to have known more about what's actually happening on the ground in Ukraine during Holy Week, during this incredibly sensitive time with a hundred pages or so of liturgy. Are the churches being able to hold services? Are there services being held in the ruins of Orthodox churches? And for that matter, Eastern Rite Catholic churches in Ukraine. I'm reminded, and for people who think this has never happened before, I'm reminded that back in the early 1990s, I forget exactly which Pascha it was, NATO bombed 
Orthodox churches in Kosovo on Pascha. So American-backed planes, if not American planes and bombs, fell on Orthodox churches on the holiest day in Christianity during the fighting for Kosovo. So, I mean, this sort of tragedy is not without precedent, and there probably are dozens of other examples of atrocities of various kinds committed on holy days. I just wanted to say that heading into Pascha, this is more than just symbolic. This is tragic on every conceivable level. Really, I, I would join Pope Francis and everybody else, and it's been in my prayers now for weeks. At the very least, can we have a Pascha ceasefire and renewed negotiations toward a truly independent Ukraine? So the New York Times essentially ignores Onufrius. Do they make any attempt, apart from, as you said, they don't mention him, but do they make an attempt to explain why his ecclesiastical superior, Kirill, is supporting this war? Well, I mean, of course, you know, everybody's citing the fact that he's justifying the war as part of a wider conflict with the United States, the European Union, and also big corporate America, big tech in particular, over lifestyle and social issues. At which point, if people hear me say one thing today, it is not pro-Putin to be in favor of the Russian Orthodox's church defending the doctrines of orthodoxy on issues like marriage, sexuality, abortion, etc. It is not pro-Putin to think that for years now, Russia has had some valid points to make about the invasion of its culture by what it sees as the liberalizing trends of American industry, corporate life, and Apple, Amazon, Facebook, etc., Disney, whatever. Now, <laughs> it's something else to agree with Kirill that because of those clashes, that means it's valid to invade and bomb Ukraine or to try to say that there isn't some route to an independent Ukraine other than Russia seizing it and actively putting it back in the Soviet orbit. The press has trouble on this situation, trying to understand that there are interesting voices in the middle. There are interesting voices that are anti-Putin, who oppose what Kirill is saying to back this invasion, yet still support the heritage and the teachings of the Russian Orthodox Church, and may even support the Russian Orthodox Church in some of its ecclesiastical battles with the ecumenical patriarch Constantinople and the European Union and the U.S. State Department, I would add. It is possible to have more than one idea in your head at the same time and to attempt to act on them. I was particularly struck by the fact, I don't know if you noticed this, it's, it's a provocative paragraph. There's a, a paragraph in the story. In the United States, some adherents expressed anger that although the two main American branches of Russian origin, the Orthodox Church in America, 
and the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia have condemned the fighting and worked to help refugees, they avoided criticizing Patriarch Kirill directly. And then the next bombshell sentence, an influx of converts in recent years drawn by President Putin portraying himself as a bulwark against the West moral collapse has intensified the wrangling. This is a totally unattributed sentence. And I could probably propose some places where it came from, most of them located within the zip code of New York City. But there's no attribution for that information. Now, two things just on a personal level here. I attend a church in the Orthodox Church in America. My church includes Russians and Romanians, but it's predominantly convert. I don't know a single pro-Putin member of our congregation. And as a convert myself, and someone who's written a lot about orthodoxy, I have had hours of conversations with converts in the last three or four years, and in the last two years in particular. And we're seeing waves of them. A week ago, we brought 13 new catechumens into the Orthodox Church at our congregation, which is a lot of people in a church with about 140 or so active members. We have another nine to 10 catechumens right now. I would say that during COVID, we're gonna end up with probably 30 plus new members in our parish. I have had conversations with all of these people. I have not heard a single person mention Putin or Putin being a supporter of conservative moral positions taken by the Russian Orthodox Church. I have talked to some who've read enough to realize that Putin tends to back the Orthodox Church when it suits him and when he can twist certain elements of orthodoxy to support what he wants to do or say, and he ignores the Orthodox Church on a lot of other issues. Abortion leaps to mind. And some of the work the Russian Orthodox Church has done to try to restore family life in the very predominantly secular world of Russia. But boy, that is a great example of an unattributed, magisterial, anonymous New York Times sentence. There is no evidence presented in this story that the converts in orthodoxy, a trend that's been going on for 30 years now, has anything to do with Vladimir Putin. Are there examples of people out there, let's say, who are cheering for Russia and its opposition to Western culture, and they may have said some positive things about some actions or words of Putin in the past? Yeah, they may be out there, but they are not exceedingly common, and it has nothing to do with the Orthodox converts that we've seen, at least in my experience and in the experience of dozens of priests I've talked to at one meeting of the Diocese of the South in the OCA. This is not what's driving converts through Orthodox front doors right now. So, Terry, I'm curious because you said just a minute ago that you had a suspicion where this unattributed, what did you say, (laughs) magisterial statement came from. Walk us through how you suspect a statement like that. And and this is the paper of record. Yeah. Includes a paragraph that is entirely unattributed. They make no attempt to even say sources say or something like that. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, there's a, a liberal Orthodox leader quoted in this story who, if you're into Orthodox affairs and debates, you would instantly recognize this person as a progressive on moral and social issues that are being debated in Orthodoxy. So would I be surprised if during that interview with him, he said, well, you know, there's all these pro-Putin converts out there, and that's half the problems in our church. And this would be a guy from a wing of the church that, frankly, is not seeing lots of converts right now, and is located, say, in New York City, as opposed to Miami, Dallas, Houston, Wichita, Kansas, or, you know, or any place in an area of the church that is seeing a lot of converts walk in. So, I mean, these are tensions that happen inside church bodies. So was I surprised to see this progressive Orthodox guy quoted? Of course not. Was I surprised that there wasn't a single name that I know from the conservative side of Orthodox life, including lots of them who would be highly critical of Vladimir Putin and would probably be critical of how Patriarch Kirill is handling this. Was I surprised that none of those people were featured in this story? And the answer is no, I was not surprised at all. There is, at one point, a paraphrased quote from the leader of someone I've known for coming up on 40 years, Father Chad Hatfield, who is the president of the Orthodox Seminary outside of New York City, a seminary, by the way, that recently voted to move away from New York City. And a lot of controversy surrounds that effort. He was quoted about why his seminary had accepted a grant from a uh, aid agency in Russia linked to the Russian Orthodox Church. And he simply, and it was going to support a endowed chair that potentially could be named for Patriarch Carroll. And Father Chad Hatfield noted that this grant was made long before the invasion of Ukraine and that it's now on hold and is being actively reconsidered by the seminary. And that was put in a short paraphrased paragraph attributed to Father Chad Hatfield. Now, did they quote anything else that he had to say about the conflict? Was he asked about other things about the conflict? Here's a man who is a convert to orthodoxy himself decades ago. Did they interview him about convert culture? something that he would know totally inside out. Well, if they did, none of it made it into the story. It's possible that Father Chad and other people preferred not to directly challenge the work of Patriarch Carroll by name. This is something the Orthodox are kind of noted for, they don't criticize hierarchs openly that often. What they do is wait to see what the global circle of orthodox hierarchs are going to end up pronouncing on this matter. Would you say that right now there are lengthy discussions in Antioch, Greece, Romania, 
the United States and lots of other places where there are bishops and metropolitans and maybe even a patriarch or two who are privately arguing about the actions of Patriarch Kirill and how to deal with them. Are some of them saying things like, this may sound crass, but it's orthodoxy does nothing fast. Orthodoxy is not into headlines. It's in to global consensus. And sometimes that may take years. It may take decades. It may take the end of this conflict with people working behind the scenes to end it and then publicly celebrating when it's over. It may take a lot of things, but eventually the Orthodox hierarchs around the world will have something to say about the future of Orthodoxy in Ukraine, and they may even have something to say about some of the actions of the Patriarchate of Moscow. But they're not going to do it on the timeline of elite media in blue zip codes in the United States. There's a reason the word Byzantine is often used as a way of saying that a Byzantine plot or a Byzantine argument is one that is extremely complex, mysterious, hard to understand, and takes a long time. There is a reason the word Byzantine exists in that context. The New York Times also mentions kind of more locally parishioners of Russian Orthodox or Russian-connected Orthodox churches in the United States switching. They cite one Lena Zezulin, Uh, and it's an interesting little anecdote there. Is that something that needs a little more, more than one person? Yeah, yeah. that higher in the story, you have a magisterial, unattributed statement. In the United States, some believers are switching churches. Well, people, sadly, switch churches a lot. And for a lot of reasons, for doctrinal reasons, because they prefer one priest over another. Hear me say, how big a trend is that? Did anybody document this? Other than this one case that makes it into an anecdote at the end of the story. Once again, we have paragraphs, large, sweeping New York Times paragraphs about statements about orthodoxy and the conflicts in orthodoxy with zero attribution. And then when you look at the attributions in this story and the ones who speak on the records and the one who speak the people who speak out, then you kind of go, well, what do you know? All of these people are on one side of the decades of conflicts between Russia and Istanbul. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that strange? And the answer of course is no. That paragraph is followed by this single-sentence paragraph. By all accounts, a serious cleavage in the church appears inevitable, but the course of the war will determine its depth and the scar tissue left behind. Is that an overstatement or an understatement, given what you said at the very beginning of our conversation? Well, I mean, Ukraine, for several decades now, at one point had three different Orthodox jurisdictions, one of which was formally recognized by most of the world, and that is the one that was under, as it has been for centuries, the Moscow Patriarchate. The others represent real tensions in Ukraine. 
But listeners may recall that what I've stressed all along is that Ukraine is Eastern Ukraine and Western Ukraine are radically different cultures that the Soviets jammed into one structure and then let them fight for decades. And Western Ukraine has tended to be more Eastern Rite Catholic, more independent, Ukrainian Orthodox, and as a rule, more pro-Europe, where for the most part, and although, yes, I know all about the vicious fighting that's going on over there right now, for the most part, Eastern Ukraine is much more linked to Russian culture and history and language. And all you have to do is look up a map on the voting patterns in recent Ukrainian elections to see this. You have about a 35%, maybe 40% of Ukraine that tends to be much more Russian in its culture. And you can expect the Moscow Patriarchate loyal churches over there to be more in favor of continuing that relationship. Whereas the further east you go, the more independent Orthodox, the more Eastern Rite Catholic, which are Eastern churches that are loyal to the Pope in Rome, and as a rule, more European style of life goes. The ultimate tragedy of all of this is right between those two warring camps sits Kiev, a city with a millennia of importance in the history of Slavic and Russian Christianity. The Jerusalem of Slavic Christianity is Kiev. As I've been saying all along, that's the ultimate tragedy in all of this. And will things get worse? Folks, under the Soviet Union, Ukraine was terribly abused, horribly treated. Millions died of starvation. Chernobyl was just one symbolic moment in the history of Soviet-Ukrainian relationship. Tons of bad blood there. The current actions by Russia can only make that worse. But will that completely settle the orthodox situation of what to do with orthodox Christianity inside of Ukraine? It will make it certainly more painful, more complex, but anyone who would try to predict how global orthodoxy will ultimately come down on that issue, I would urge them to do something that Americans do not do well, which is be patient. The Orthodox, there is a sentence stating this in the Times piece. Orthodoxy tends to move slowly and carefully and seek global consensus. I would also mention that news consumers might watch another trend right now, which is the attacks the violent attacks against Orthodox churches that are happening around the world. In some cases, people are even attacking Greek Orthodox churches, the people who would most be loyal to Istanbul, Constantinople, and probably have the highest percentage of people who are opposed to Moscow and the Moscow Patriarchate. Right now, the word Orthodox on a sign in your front lawn is enough to get your church attacked right now by some people. And that's another level of this tragedy 
that it might have been good to mention in the story. With about a minute here, Terry, is this internal conflict between Orthodoxy and Russia and Ukraine on the war, is it newsworthy? Of course, in large part because Putin is claiming that he has orthodox arguments for what he did. And the issue is, does anyone outside of part of the Church of Russia agree with him on that? And I think the answer would be no. But once again, there are people who are totally opposed to the Russian Orthodox Church, and that's been true for decades. There are people who are furious with the Moscow Patriarchate and Patriarch Kirill for his words of support for Putin in the invasion. And in the middle are a lot of people who are actually very sympathetic to the cause of the Russian Orthodox Church in its battles and tensions with Europe, American corporations, mass media, Disney, etc. But don't back the war. There are two extremes here, and in the middle is a very interesting and complex bunch of Orthodox people who simply are not making it into the coverage. The fact that I attend a church camped out in that middle ground makes me especially sensitive to that, and I admit it, and especially in as sensitive a time as Holy Week and coming up here shortly, Pascha. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate in the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. Talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.